Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Point of Insanity Game Studios Geekery in General Podcast. Today, we're going to be taking a look at some more of my favorite urban legends, SCPs, and creepypastas. Before we begin, though, just like to announce that my Kickstarter for Strange Things Afoot is live. So if you are listening to this between January 13th through February 13th, please consider going to Kickstarter, check out the project, and if you like what you see, please consider uh, backing the project. I would certainly appreciate it. So since I have been working on this project, I have been doing a lot of reading up on urban legends, listening to creepypastas, and trying to learn a little bit more about some SCPs because I find them interesting and some of it has inspired the test campaign I was doing. So that's why we're going to take a look at 13 more of my favorite creepypasta, urban legends, and SCPs. So to start at number 13, SCP-999. The Tickle Monster. One of the reasons I like this SCP is it's a far cry from most of the entities that you read about on the SCP wiki. It's not something that is going to kill you and suck out your brains. It appears as a small little amorphous glob. And anyone who comes in contact with SCP-999 gets a feeling of happiness and euphoria. And the creature will try to find people who are hurt or sad and try to cheer them up. But this cute little friendly creature does have a little bit of an unusual backstory to it. It is connected to another SCP, and that is SCP-231. These are actually seven girls who were captive of a satanic cult that worshipped an entity called the Scarlet King, which is an entity that is believed to represent fear and evil incarnate. These girls were all impregnated by the cult, and the first six SCP-231s unfortunately gave birth to monsters and ended up dying in the process. Now, the Foundation figured that once the last girl gave birth, it would bring about the end of the world. So they initiated a procedure called 110 Montauk, which was supposed to be able to prevent this from happening. It caused extreme negative emotions and reactions in the people who were partaking in this procedure. But eventually, the foundation decided to let the girl give birth, and she gave birth to SCP-999. It's said that, despite its appearance, it's actually a great hero, and he will eventually fight the Scarlet King. However, right now, he's still just a baby and needs time to mature. Number 12. Gas Station Jack. Now, this is actually a series of several creepypastas involving a character named Jack, who works at a gas station 
in a backwoods town. He has a unique disability that prevents him from sleeping, and he usually works the late shift at the gas station. I've listened to a few of the stories on another podcast I listened to called Creepy, and I recently listened to their series of Christmas stories. Now, one of the things that's funny about this Creepypasta series is... Supernatural events seem to be commonplace at this gas station. For example, in one episode, the narrator was talking about a ghost of a cowboy that haunts the bathroom. And there was also another one where Jack thought he was going to die because it looked like death had come for him. But as it turned out, it was actually just a fan who had written some fan fiction about him, and was apparently planning on kidnapping him. But in this Christmas series, the story involved some sort of a shape-shifting creature, as well as a demonic figure. And the protagonist didn't seem to be freaked out about any of this at all. It's like, oh, a demonic entity. Just another day at the gas station. So, highly recommend checking out Gas Station Jack stories if you are so inclined. Number 11, The No End House. I like this one because it reminds me of an urban legend that I've talked about before, and that is the story about the haunted house that is so scary, no one has ever finished it. In the story, the narrator talks about how he was told about a haunted house building that had nine rooms. And if you got through all nine rooms, you won $500. Now, the first room was pretty tame. It was decorated with the kind of things you would usually find at your local department store. However, the rooms become progressively weirder and progressively more terrifying. Well, eventually he does manage to make it through, and when he returns to the lobby, there's an envelope there with his $500. But when he gets home, he sees there's a number 10 on the door, implying that the whatever experiences he just endured are going to be added on, and he hasn't finished the house, so he's probably cursed to keep going through all these terrifying experiences. Number 10. Lost Episodes. I talked about Lost Episodes in my first top 13 favorite SCPs, Urban Legends, and Creepypasta. In that episode, I was talking about Lost Episodes as a genre. However, not too long ago, I listened to a Creepypasta about Lost Episodes And this creepypasta attempted to explain the origin of all these other lost episode creepypastas. It said they were created by a man named Sid, who was a skilled artist and animator. Someone who knew him during his childhood said he would rent movies, edit the footage, and return it to the store with his version of the tape. He was so good at it that he could edit any footage together and make it look like it belonged there, that it was extremely convincing. So he was said to be responsible for several famous lost episodes, 
such as Squidward's suicide and Dead Bart. However, the tale takes a dark turn when the narrator decides to visit Sid's house. He finds it in a state of severe neglect and disrepair. He breaks in and discovers that Sid's parents have been murdered, and Sid's dead body is propped up in his garage studio with wires connected directly into his brain. Number 9. SCP-458 Now, if there was a list of SCPs that I wish were real, this would be number one on that list. It looks like a box of Little Caesar's Pizza. However, the box has proven to be indestructible, and no attempts to damage it have been successful. However, when held by someone, and that person thinks of pizza, the box will materialize whatever type of pizza the holder wants. However, it doesn't have to be just Little Caesar's Pizza. It's said that it can create other brands of pizza, as well as homemade pizzas. Number 8. The Hook-Handed Man This is an urban legend from the 1950s, and like many old urban legends, there are many different variations. The most common one is that two teenagers are on their way home from a date and they decide to stop at the local lover's lane. While there, they are interrupted by a news broadcast about a man who escaped from a local institution, and he was considered extremely dangerous and had a hook for one of his hands. While the couple hears a scraping sound, they get freaked out, drive away. Now, at the end of the night, when they finally get home, the boy gets out of the car and he notices that there is a hook dangling from the side of the door. Some versions, however, don't have a happy ending. Some variations of the legend say that the hook-handed man managed to murder the two teenagers. So this one probably was meant to be a morality tale because back in the 50s they had a lot different view of love and romance and sexuality that than we do today so this was supposed to be a one of those little morality tales about why you don't go driving off to the middle of nowhere to make out with your boyfriend or girlfriend because you never know when the hook-handed man is going to show up. And I suppose to some extent we can say this trope has continued because you look at a lot of the slasher movies that were popular in the 1980s, usually the people who are first to die are the ones that go off into the woods for a little uh, romantic time. And that's usually when you know that they are going to be killed by the monster or the serial killer. Number seven. Siren Head. This is a creepypasta about a strange creature that is similar to Slender Man in that it's tall and thin. However, Siren Head is a lot larger, being about as tall as a telephone pole. Instead of a head, he has 
two megaphones attached to a long pole coming out of the his uh his spine now his skin is said to be similar to that of rusty metal and the megaphones each has a mouth full of teeth it's said that he could make a variety of sounds such as random words or the unnerving wail that you would expect to hear from an emergency siren trevor henderson the creator of siren head implied that it might not be a unique entity, but actually just a single individual in its species. And there's also been other pictures people have made, including ones that show a figure similar to Siren Head in cave paintings, implying that this entity, whatever it is, has been with us for a very long time. Number 6 Underwater Pyramids in Rock Lake, Wisconsin. Now, this is another one of those urban legends, or maybe some people might say it's actually closer to folklore, that is actually very near and dear to me. Rock Lake is located in a town called Lake Mills, and I have family that used to live there. I think some of them might still be there, I'm not sure. Uh, They're more like distant cousins that we haven't really seen in a while. But when I was a kid, we used to go out there and visit them. And my great aunt, she lived on the lake. And I remember her telling me a story about how there's believed to be pyramids under Rock Lake. Now, of course, there's a lot of different stories going around about these pyramids, some of which I'm not sure if they're true. Supposedly, the Native Americans who lived in the area were aware of them, and one theory is that they may have been built as altars when there was a drought, hoping that it would bring more rain. It's also said that when the levels were lower, that you could actually see the pyramids, and that the early European traders that went into the area were also aware of them. One of the more modern accounts says that in the, if I'm not mistaken, it was around the 1920s, 1930s, there were a couple of duck hunters that were out on the lake. And since there was a particularly bad drought that year, the levels of the lake were much lower than usual. And when they were getting ready to row their boat away from their spot, they hit the pyramid with one of their oars. Now, the pyramids supposedly have been photographed from airplanes that have flown over the area. However, they haven't really been seen for a while because the lake is actually very murky with sediment and algae. Now, one of the theories about the pyramids at Rock Lake is that they may have been built by the same people who established another Native American settlement called Cahokia, which is in Illinois, not that far from St. Louis, Missouri. Now, there's also another theory that connects Cahokia to another place not far from Rock Lake, and that place is called Astalon State Park. Both Cahokia and Astalon have 
structures that look like step pyramids. And it is believed that there were there was also a wall that surrounded these ancient cities. Now, I'm not sure how big Astalon was believed to have been, but some archaeologists believe that Cahokia was about the same size as London was back during that time period. There's also a theory that Astalon may have been a trading post of Cahokia because archaeological excavations there have discovered artifacts made of copper that is unique to the upper peninsula of Michigan, as well as shells that are unique to the Gulf of Mexico. And as I recall, similar items were found in Cahokia. So that's why a lot of people believe that Astalon may have been a, an outpost for Cahokia. As far as I know, no one has claimed to see the pyramids recently. Like I said before, the waters there are very murky, which makes finding them extremely difficult. But it's still an interesting story. And like I said, very near and dear to me because it always takes me back to my childhood. Just like that story about the haunted house that's too scary to finish. Number five, five years in hell. This creepypasta tells the story of a woman whose life was going downhill. It starts with her making several major mistakes at her job, which leads to her getting fired. Eventually, her fiancé leaves her for her best friend, and she discovers that she can't find joy in anything. Eventually, she decides to kill herself by jumping off of a building, but when she hits the, the, the ground... She doesn't die, but instead ends up lying there for several days, and everyone just keeps walking by. No one bothers to help her. Things start to get more terrifying, and eventually she's chased by horrible creatures and is forced to hide. When she comes out of hiding, she sees zombie-like people walking towards a hole in the ground, and... She tries to get away, but finds that she's being pushed towards the hole by a fence. She feels an electric shock, and after this shock, she wakes up in the emergency room. The doctors tell her that she was in an accident, and she had died and was dead for five seconds, but they managed to bring her back. But perhaps what's the most chilling part of this creepypasta is how it ends. The narrator's last words are that, be aware if you find that your life is going very badly, you might actually be in hell. I also like how this story shows the realization of yourself being in hell as being a gradual process. Because I think most of us are used to this idea where you die and then shortly after you find yourself wherever. But like I said, I just thought it was an interesting take how it shows the realization of being in hell as being a gradual process. Number four, SCP-001. There's a couple of different stories out there claiming to be the real SCP-001, and both of them do claim to have to do with the origin of the SCP Foundation. 
The first version is called The Angel. And near the intersection of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, it's said that there is supposed to be a large angelic figure holding a sword. And when anything gets too close to it, it gives that person a command that they find they cannot ignore. Usually it's simply forget, which means they walk away and forget where they were. However, if you get too close, the angel will strike you with the sword and totally obliterate you from existence. However, it was said that the founder of the SCP Foundation, when he discovered the angel, the word he was given was prepare, which is what caused him to form the SCP Foundation. The other SCP-001 is called the Factory. So this was a factory that was established in the 1800s, and it was said to be huge. It was so big that it could produce just about anything, and it also provided housing for the workers. It was said that you could be born, live out your life, and die in the factory without ever having to leave it. However, the owner of the factory treated the employees very badly. And it was said that if you got too injured to work, you were dragged away by security and never seen again. The factory supposedly was able to make several unusual items, such as hammers that only worked on human flesh or toy guns that shot real bullets. Eventually, one of the workers managed to escape and was able to tell the president of what was going on in the factory. So President Grant assembled a team of special forces to go in and attack the factory. And during the, the battle, the owner of the factory was found, dis killed, hung, dismembered, and eventually burnt in a bonfire. Well, the people who were in charge of this mission to take over the factory of course, had different views of what should be done with the unusual items that were found there. And some of them wanted to use it for profit, others wanted to destroy all of these items, and others wanted to just contain and study them. Well, the early SCP Foundation, they were hunting a race of creatures that were known as fairies. And one day, the fairies attacked the factory, destroying almost Everyone. Well, the narrator manages to escape the fairies and finds himself in a room confronted by the charred remains of Anderson, the man who had been running the factory. And he was told that every time one of these unusual items was used, it strengthened the thing, which we're not really sure what that was. So he made a deal with the entity in the factory that. It would try to contain these special objects, and in exchange, the entity would make sure that the fairies were wiped from existence. However, the factory demands a sacrifice of at least one person every day. Otherwise, it's believed the fairies will return. So I just find it's interesting that there's a couple different versions of what the supposed real SCP-1 is, 
and how it connected to the formation of the SCP Foundation. Number three, the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon. I've already talked a bit about this when I did my episode on role-playing game Urban Legends with my friend Dan from the Radio Free Borderlands podcast, but I think it deserves a place on the list because, again, the D&D cartoon always does take me back to my childhood. So there's a couple of urban legends that have gone around about this ep- this series. One of them is that the kids eventually did make it home in the end, which, as we discussed on that one episode, there was an episode where the kids did make it home, but Venger followed them, and they found out that their weapons were powerless on Earth, so they had to go back to the realm, to pre- and so Venger would follow them instead of Avenger wreaking havoc on our world. But perhaps the urban legend about the cartoon that's not as well known is that the original plan for the cartoon is that the kids would eventually find out they died on the ride, that they were in hell, and the dungeon master was actually the devil. Remember, this cartoon did air during the Satanic Panic. But The creator of the show, one of the main writers, did confirm that, no, that's not true. There never was any plans to reveal that the kids died and were in hell and that the dungeon master was actually Satan. Number two, guitarist learns how to play a complicated guitar rift only to find out that it was actually two guitarists playing that song. So this is another one of those urban legends that's been around for a while, uh, at least a a few decades. And the story goes that there was a young guitarist who listened to this song and he was trying to teach himself how to play that song. But this rift was just so complicated, it took him a long time before he eventually found out how to play it. But he then finds out that that rift that was really complicated was actually performed by two guitarists, not one. So obviously this guitarist would have had to have had a great deal of skill to play something that normally only two people would play. And there's a variety of respected guitarists that have been attributed to this legend, including Eddie Van Halen, Eric Clapton, and Joe Walsh. Speaking of Eddie Van Halen, this brings us to number one. You don't get to be one of the most successful rock bands in history without having a few stories told about you. And number one on this list is that Van Halen destroyed a dressing room because of a bowl that had brown M&Ms in it. Now, one of the reasons I like this urban legend is because there is actually a little bit of truth and reality to this legend. Now, the original version of the legend goes that the band requested several things to be ready in the dressing room area, including a bowl of M&Ms that had all of the brown ones picked out. The legend says that while they were performing a show in New Mexico, they found that this request was not honored And as a result, the band trashed the backstage area and did thousands of dollars worth of damage to the venue. Now, the part about the brown M&Ms is actually true. 
David Lee Roth explained it in his biography. He verified that not only was this true, but there was actually a really good reason for it. Van Halen used a lot of equipment in their shows for the day. As David Lee Roth put it, back then, a rock band might only have two or three trailers worth of gear, whereas they had 18 trailers. So, since they had all this gear, there was a good chance that something was going to go wrong. So they needed a quick and easy way to make sure that the venue had read through and fully understood their waiver. Now, this included a lot of things that were you would consider common sense. For example, the venue had to make sure that their doors were a certain size so the band could get their equipment into the performing area. Also, they had to make sure that their floor could withstand a certain amount of pounds of pressure per square inch, so it could support the weight of the stage. They also had to make sure that the electrical system was up to the specifications they needed. Otherwise, they would risk blowing a fuse, someone might get electrocuted, or in the worst case scenario, they could set the entire venue on fire. So in the middle of this section about all the technical specifications, they included a section about munchies saying that the following things need to be in the the backstage area. One of them was a bowl of M&Ms, no brown ones. And the reason they put that in there is because that way when they got to the backstage area, if they saw that there was a bowl of M&Ms and the brown ones weren't picked out, they could be reasonably certain that the venue did not read over the rider carefully enough and they could possibly run into issues. Now here's where things start to get blended between reality and fiction. Now according to David Lee Roth, they were performing a show at the University of Pueblo in Colorado. And when Roth saw that there were brown M&Ms in the dressing room, he did cause damage to the backstage area. Or as he put it, $12,000 worth of fun. However, the papers the next day said that the actual damage was over $80,000. However, most of the damage was not done by David Lee Roth or the band. As Roth explained, the people at the arena didn't read over the rider very carefully, and they didn't bother to make sure that the floor was strong enough to support the weight of the stage and all their equipment. But since the university didn't read that part, they didn't know that their floor couldn't support the weight of the stage, and it ended up sinking through the floor and causing several thousands, tens of thousand dollars worth of damage. Not long after that, they saw the headlines where it said that the band did $80,000 worth of damage because of a bowl that had brown M&Ms. So you might wonder, why did the band not really go out of their way to dispute this urban legend? Well, to quote David Lee Roth himself, Who am I to get in the way of a good rumor? So there you have it. 13 more of my favorite urban legends, creepypastas, and SCPs. So hope you enjoyed the episode, and thanks for listening, and have a good evening, or morning, or afternoon, whatever it is, wherever you are, and...
happy gaming. Hey! This is Adventures Anthology, or what we lovingly call D&DAA. We're a native Green Bay group of four players in our DM, Micah Brault, who all come from different backgrounds and have different experiences and skill levels within Dungeons and Dragons. Our campaign takes place in a crazed homebrew universe of various genres, and we have a tasty cocktail drink every session. We'll have one-shots with special guests like Blake McClellan from Mindless Productions. We run raffles for miniatures, and potentially we'll do some meetups in the future. So come check out our website and join the conversations at Adventures Anthology on Spotify. So if you like Dungeons & Dragons, role-playing, and drinking shots to craft cocktails, check us out. Thank you. been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio.